All right. Our scripture this morning for Easter is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, starting in verse 11. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. Going down to verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Amen. Thank you, Cindy. Well, good morning and welcome. Happy Easter, everybody. Uh, To me, it always feels like Easter is the Super Bowl of Sundays for the church. It's like, man, it doesn't get any bigger than this. Although the best part is, unlike the Super Bowl, we don't get to just celebrate it on one Sunday. The claim of the resurrection is we get to celebrate it every day. So happy Easter, everybody. Christ is risen. We're so glad to be able to celebrate this with you. Uh, Life is filled with big questions. Uh, big questions. What, what is the meaning of it all? Uh, is there more to life than this? Uh, what's my purpose? Uh, is there even such thing as purpose? Or, or for that matter, meaning? I mean, these are big questions that, that countless people throughout history have been asking. And they're really questions that we all are asking, even if we aren't actively wrestling with them. They're, they're such important questions that become all the more poignant as we live more life. And they're they're questions that are deeply and profoundly impacting the way we live, whether we realize it or not. That's what makes the claim of the resurrection so big and so vitally important. Uh, I'm not one for hyperbole, even though, yes, I know I'm a preacher. Uh, But the claim of the resurrection is that it is the central answer to life's biggest questions. The resurrection changes everything. It is, it is the gospel, or what, what is literally known as the good news, God's gospel. And it is such good news that it, even if you're here today and you have a hard time believing that it's true, you should at least want it to be true. And so today, looking at Romans 8 here, uh, this text in front of us, uh, very briefly, we're going we're gonna to understand how the resurrection just changes everything and, and consider some of its implications. So first, let's pray, and then we'll, then we'll get into it. Father, thank you so much for Easter. Thank you so much for the empty tomb. That after you went to the cross to die for the forgiveness of sins, that uh, you were raised again to life on the third day, that we too, if we would receive you, can have eternal life with you. We, we, We thank you for this. For those of us who are your fathers, we can so easily take this for granted. But Lord, I want to pray that especially as we remember this, as we celebrate this today on Easter Sunday, that you would help us sink into our hearts a little more deeply. 
And I want to pray, especially for those who are here today, who aren't your followers, that you would, you would speak especially to their hearts. I pray that not my words uh, would, be, would be understood or received or, or even considered, but, but, but the, the power of your spirit working through it all, touching each of our hearts. And I pray that you would open up your scripture to us in this time that we have together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, the the resurrection changes everything. What we see in the text that Cindy read for us is what we see all throughout the scriptures, and that is that the Bible is uninterested in painting over pain and suffering. There is no place in the Bible where it's, you know, God's followers or even anyone in particular is, is taught to, you know what, when it comes to pain and suffering, let's just pretend it's not there. Or let's just, let's just uh, you know, just suck it up. Or even worse, what you really need to do is you need to turn the frown upside down. The Bible's uninterested in painting over pain and suffering. What we see in the scriptures all throughout, and then also here in this text in Romans 8, is that the world is not how it should be. The world is not how it was meant to be. Uh, this is repeated multiple times in various ways in our text. Let me just uh, highlight a few. In verse 18, Paul, the writer of this letter, calls out that there are, quote, present sufferings. And then verse 20, we're told that creation is subject to frustration. And then verse 21, there's this bondage to decay. None of us have to read a scientific journal to understand right now that creation or nature is not how it's meant to be. Uh, I am coaching baseball again this year. And I have never experienced a year like this one. Okay, I've played many, many years of baseball. I've coached many, many years of baseball. And this is a, this is a bizarre year. Uh, I was making the lineup for my uh, first game, you know, putting people in their positions. And in particular, trying to figure out who's going to bat what, when in the order. Okay, And I've never before this year have, uh, had to do that without having seen any of my players hit a baseball this season you, you, you following? I, nor had I seen my team have any single practice on a real field before that first game. And I'm going around, we're having all these games now, we have now our fourth game just, the other, just, just yesterday, and every coach is telling me that's the same thing that they've dealt with, and you all know the reason why this has been such a bizarre year for, for baseball players. It's because it's been a bizarre year in terms of weather, right? I mean, never before this year had I heard of what, a, you know, a, a atmospheric river, what that was. But we all know what atmospheric rivers are now, you know? And here's the crazy thing. As much as I'm saying here right now that this has been a bizarre year weather-wise, I think we all know that bizarre year weather-wise is now the norm. And, you know, I could talk about how, like, even just this last week or so, I've been reading all these things about tornadoes and the, the damage that's been causing earthquakes the world over. The world is not the way it was meant to be. And that's true in terms of nature. That's also true, true in terms of, uh, in a sense of politically and socially. But I don't have to spend a whole lot of time on that to make the point. And one of the things I like to do, hearkening back to my poli sci days, and, uh, just, and, and being a, a pastor, just wanting to know what's happening, is I'm constantly reading the news. And, and I could just tell you that the news is telling me all the time, every day, what it's telling you, and that is things are not the way they're supposed to be. And we, and we see that in politics and in social tensions, just all over the place. There's this word here where it describes kind of what's going on. It says, it says the world is subject to frustration. That word could also be translated into our English as, as the word meaningless. 
The world is subject to meaninglessness. If you happen to know the scriptures, maybe you know that there's a Bible in the, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures leading up to Jesus, called the book of Ecclesiastes. And it's a book written by the ancient King Solomon who is known for his wisdom. And the refrain in that book is meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. You could pursue comfort and good things or, or you could just pursue not bad things is the point of that book, but it's all meaningless. Solomon said, same word in the Greek here when it says the world is subject to frustration. And so when I'm reading about, for instance, another shooting, I'm at the place, and man, this is so hard. I wonder if you're there too. I read about another shooting now, and and I'm almost scrolling past it. Be like, well, we can almost become desensitized right now. It's happening so frequently. And that's not to mention all the other crises happening in the world. I mean, meaninglessness, frustration, the word that's often used in our vernacular is how senseless these things are. The world's not the way it's supposed to be in terms of nature, socially, politically, but then also it's not the way it's supposed to be personally, relationally. I was just recently listening to an interview given by a renowned clinical psychologist, secular guy, so non-religious guy, who had seen thousands of patients over over his career. And at one point in this interview, he said, life is suffering. And for those of you out there, the few of you who are, happen to not be suffering right now, take it as a blessing because suffering's inevitable. I'm listening to that. I'm like, thanks for the encouragement, man. It's like, tell me how you really feel. But that's real. I mean, suffering, pain is, we don't need the news. We don't need to see what's going on with nature to understand it. Suffering and pain is all around us, relationally. And you know what? It's, it's, it's within us, too. Uh, one of the texts that really resonated for me as a, as a young guy, uh, younger, younger adult, when I was trying to figure out faith and, and Christianity and that sort of thing, is actually the chapter that comes right before the one we're in today. So in Romans chapter 7, Paul is talking about how it's human nature. He's speaking in, in, the, in the first person pronoun. He's talking about how for himself, even as a guy who, who was super loving, caring, gave his life serving other people, he said, the thi- I, don't know, I don't know what it is about me, but the things that I know I ought to do, I don't really do those things. And the things I know I ought not to be doing, I find that I'm doing those things. And I remember reading that as a young man being like, boy, that really describes me. And please hear the spirit which I'm trying to say this. I'm not Here's the spirit which I'm trying to say. It's like, I, I read that. And I'm trying to be a good guy. Like, I'm, not, I'm out there trying to be a good guy. And yet, I understand very acutely what he talks about when he says, the things that I ought to do, I, I, don't, I don't do those things. The things I ought to not to do, I do those things. And I just have a massive case study just around me in the lives of the people I love and care for. As much as I love and care for them and want to love and care for them, so often I find myself failing to do so, causing them pain and hurt when I don't really want to do it, but it's just, I just have a tendency to do things I ought not to do. And, so the world is not as it ought to be. The scriptures are clear on that in terms of nature, socially, politically, personally, relationally. And then most of all, the world is not as, as it meant to be because there is death. Because there is death. One of the, the humble, heavy privileges I get as a pastor from time to time is I get to walk with families uh, through, through funerals, through, through times of, of great loss. And without exception when I've done a funeral, without exception, there'll be a time or even a few 
where I'll notice that it's especially, you, know, you just read it in people's eyes. There's this sober intake on our own mortality. Death is not the way that the world ought to be. And you know, as a modern Western society, you know what we do when it comes to death? We just tend to push it away. We just tend to just not think about it. We just don't want to go there. But it's in the background. It's there. The world's not the way it's supposed to be. And death, most of all, shows that. There's this really interesting story in the gospel accounts where Jesus predicts beforehand, like on the way, he predicts that he's getting ready to raise a man whose name was Lazarus from the, from the dead. It's a kind of a famous story. He, he, he predicts with his disciples as he's on the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise him from the dead. And then, spoiler alert, he goes on to raise Lazarus from the dead. But an interesting thing happens in between. Because in between predicting that he'll do it and then actually going out and doing it, he comes to the processional of Lazarus' dead body being taken to the tomb. And we have the shortest, perhaps also the most powerful verse in all the scriptures when it said, and Jesus wept. I can count on one finger the number of times I've, I've heard in person a grown man weep. And I can tell you, I remember it vividly because it's just a, it's an intense powerful thing. I cannot begin to imagine what it must have been like to hear Jesus, the Son of God, weep. Now, why would Jesus, the Son of God, weep, especially when he had just predicted that he's getting ready to raise the guy from life and went on to do just that, raise the guy from, from dead to life? Why would he weep? It's because the world is not the way it ought to be. And most of all, because of of, of death. And what the scriptures teach us, and perhaps most vividly, I love the metaphor that's used here in, in Romans 8, is that because of this, we groan. Our English captures that. We, we groan. I cannot think of a more aptly, an, an, an apt metaphor to describe the what of how I feel when it comes to the state of the world than the metaphor of groaning. And yet, That's what the scriptures teach. The world, creation, nature is groaning, Paul says in our text. All humankind is groaning. God's followers are groaning. And God himself is groaning. We're all groaning because the world is not the way it's it's meant to be. And you know, while this text doesn't give a systematic teaching for the reason why the world is not how it ought to be, it does Harken back to the ultimate reason for, for this being the case. It harkens back, if you have a Bible, it's not going to be on the screen. In verse 20, harken back, harkens back to the creation account. Excuse me. In the creation account, we see why the world is not the way it meant to be. In that account, of course, I'm sure everybody is familiar with it. Adam, and essentially together we with him, decided to choose to reject God. I mean, that's really what the Bible calls sin. Okay? God created us to be in relationship with him. He created us to, to be in a loving relationship with him. And as such, he gave us the will, he gave us the volition to choose or choose not to love him. And he, and together with him, we regularly choose not to love him in the form of rejecting God and his ways. That's what sin is. That's what selfishness is. That's what greed is. That's what pride is. That's what impatience is. It's rejecting God and his ways. And because of this, Death came into the world, and along with it, entropy and all of it. The world is not the way it ought to be. Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. 
Now, when it says death in that case, it's not just talking about physical death, although it certainly included that. It's also talking about spiritual death, meaning separation from God, a severance of the good, loving relationship we had with him because we chose to reject him and his ways. But the gospel is, the good news is, God sent his son into the world to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. The gospel is not that Jesus came into the world to teach some good sermons. The gospel is not that Jesus came to perform some miracles. The gospel is not that Jesus came to be a model or an example. The gospel is Jesus came into this world to live the life we ought to live, but don't. And then die the death that we deserved, such that we could receive forgiveness for our sins and be brought back into a relationship with God. He did for us what we could not do for ourselves. And that's why the resurrection is so important. That's why the resurrection changes everything. Because the resurrection is the stamp of God saying, and for those who put their faith in the Lord, they will have resurrection. They too will have life. Remember I talked about how Lazarus was raised to life, Jesus raised him to life? Well, Lazarus went on to die and go back into the grave. But the resurrection of Jesus means that Lazarus and everybody who puts their faith in him will be raised again to life forever. Our text says in verse 11, and the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. The world is not how it should be, but the resurrection changes everything. The resurrection, in other words, brings new life and renewal. The resurrection brings new life and renewal. We see that a few places in our text. Verse 21, where there was bondage, there is now freedom. Verse 21, where there was decay, there will be glory. Verse 18, where there was suffering, there will be redemption. Where there was death, there is and will be life. I said earlier that if you're here today and you find the resurrection hard to believe, You should at least want it to be true. And, you know, when it comes to the claims of the resurrection, the scripture, as it does here in this verse, unabashedly goes, it's true. As in, it is historically true. A lot of people, when they think about Christianity, especially in our culture, think that Christians are turning off their brains Sunday mornings. That Christians have to suspend belief when they go to church. But the Bible would challenge you to say, no, first of all, that's not true. But second of all, look into it yourself. These questions are too important to just kind of half give a glance at them. And what the scriptures are saying is the resurrection checks out. Huh? Yeah. Uh, We don't have the time to do a deep dive here, but let me offer three lines of evidence for the resurrection. Evidence. Number one, the fact of the empty tomb. Many people point out that Christianity never would have gotten off the ground if there hadn't been an empty tomb. Jesus had no shortage of detractors. In fact, it it was detractors that had him crucified. And yet, these same detractors who had him crucified precisely because he was going around claiming that he was going to rise again from the dead could have, therefore, gone out, recovered, and displayed the body. And you'd think that they would have had every incentive to do, but, but they didn't. Okay, so there's evidence of the empty tomb. Number two, there's evidence and testimony of eyewitnesses. So uh, in the scriptures, we have uh, a number of letters written by the Apostle Paul. 
Uh, the Apostle Paul's written a lot of what we call the New Testament, so covering the life of Jesus and, and after. The Apostle Paul wrote a lot of letters to the early church. And it's worth noting that of all the letters Paul wrote, there are seven that all Bible scholars call the undisputed letters of Paul. Meaning even, even secular biblical scholars or historians go, yeah, these letters we know beyond a doubt are written by Paul. Okay, by the way, Galatians is one of those, for those of you who are part of our series this last last little bit. But 1 Corinthians is also one of those undisputed letters of Paul, meaning we know Paul wrote it. And it goes back to those dates that he wrote it. Okay, all right. There's one place in 1 Corinthians 15 where Paul lays out the importance of the resurrection. In fact, I think I've preached on that in different places the last two Easter's, okay? There's, there's one place where he says, hey, the resurrection happened. And then he goes on to list all these people who saw the risen Jesus. Here's the reason why I bring all that up. Paul was living in the lifetime of people who lived when Jesus was here, his, his earthly life, and who claimed to see him, and Paul starts listing out names. Hey, go see Peter. Go see John. And references a whole bunch of people, amounted to be about 100 people, all by way of saying, hey, and if you don't believe what I'm saying, Corinthian church, go ask these folks. And then there's the evidence of changed lives. History tells us that many, many of Jesus' followers, his disciples, not only experienced just complete life transformations at the, at the very crux of their belief because they believed that Jesus rose again from, from the dead. History also tells us that many, many of his followers gave their lives, were martyred for the very reason of claiming the resurrection was true. Now, it'd be one thing if one or two or a few weirdos were out there just doing that, disillusioned, but there were a lot of people, and if you look into it, from my humble observation, they were very rational people willing to give their lives precisely for the reason of saying the resurrection is true. The resurrection changes everything. Japanese novelist uh, Shusaku Endu uh, put it this way, and this, this won't be on your screen, so I'll just read it for you. We don't, if we don't believe in the resurrection, we will be, quote, forced to believe that what did hit the disciples was some other amazing event, different in kind, yet equal in force and electrifying intensity. Uh, philosopher and professor Alvin Plantinga wrote a book called Warranted Christian Belief, and in it he argues, based on the evidence, based on the evidence, Christianity is easier to believe than any other worldview. It's a big claim. Christianity is easier to believe, put your faith and trust in, than any other worldview, provided you allow for one thing. And that is the supernatural. The work of, of God, or a God, having impact in our lives. And I'll just tell you from personal, uh, as a personal kind of story, uh, for me, that's not a hard jump of faith. Because for me, one of the reasons why I'm Christian is because I believe there has to be a God. Like for me, I look at how we came to be, and it's easier for me to believe that some force I believe to be God brought creation into being, meaning there was something created where we are. It's harder for me to believe that just came out of nowhere. Uh, and so therefore, for, for me, and the, the claim here is if, if you see God's work in our lives, you allow for his supernatural working in our lives, the claim for the resurrection really checks out. And I would just say here, if you're here today, and you want to receive that, we want to give you opportunity. The world is not the way it's meant to be. The world is actually in a desperate place, and we don't need religion to tell us that. But the claim of the resurrection is all that's changed. 
life and its pain, its, its entropy, even sin and death itself has all been changed because of the resurrection. And for those of you who are here who have never received that, we want to give you an opportunity. In fact, if you came in today, well, as you came in today, hopefully you saw a little card. I hope you wouldn't mind looking at that with me for a moment here. It was on your seat when you came in. You pull that out. It says faith in Jesus on top of it. This is more or less our version of a a response card to give you the opportunity with zero pressure here. I mean, we have no interest in putting any pressure on you, but we want to give you an opportunity if you're here today and you'd like to put a little spiritual marker in the ground, Easter's a great day to do that. And we'd love to come alongside you and and resource you for that and be a support to you in that. In fact, uh, the team did an awesome job putting these little gift bags together with some goodies in it. But the thing I want to highlight, oh, gee, I actually took one. There's a little tape on it. Sorry, team, I'm going to ruin this one. Ah, sorry. Feel bad. The one I really want to highlight... There are other things in there, but is this book, Mere Christianity? Uh, This might sound funny to a lot of you, but even as a Christian pastor, I don't just recommend a lot of Christian books. There's a lot of good Christian books out there, but not many that I recommend. Take that for what it is. Um, But Mere Christianity is one I recommend. It's a really, really good one. Um, And the reason why we'd love to equip this with you, if you fill out a card and this could be a support to you, is uh, at least for two reasons in my mind. One, it's written by a guy named C.S. Lewis, who himself, before he put his faith in Jesus, was a staunch atheist and debater against Christianity. Okay? So he doesn't write as somebody who just grew up religious. And, you know, he writes from that perspective. And then number two, I love this book, because C.S. Lewis has a real gift of speaking to both the mind and the heart. I think we've all read books where it's like very intellectually strong, but very dry. And then conversely, it's like books that are very strong creatively, but lack a lot of substance. Like to me, this is a great like marriage of those two things. And we'd, we'd love to gift that with you if you, if you want to make a, a response save of, of kind. Again, no pressure, but there's a, there's a team out there behind the table that would love to, to help you with that. But if you're here today and you're ready to start your faith journey, I would just encourage you to, to tick that. Now, real quickly, we, don't, we aren't saved because we tick a little uh, card here. That happens in our hearts. But the point is, we would love to give you an opportunity to put a little spiritual marker down and, and, and come alongside you and be a help to you. But, but some of you, you're, you're ready to start your faith journey. You're convinced. And maybe it's a totally aside from what we talked about today, but you just found yourself here. Look, God works in our own lives in different ways. But maybe you heard today, you're like, yeah, that, that answers the question I've been thinking about. And you're ready to make a decision. We want to give you an opportunity to, to make, put down a little spiritual marker. Say, yeah, I'm ready to begin my, my faith. Or then some of you, you're ready to come back to your faith. And this could be for a variety of reasons. Maybe you moved to the Silicon Valley, uh, you know, a number of years ago. Maybe it was the pandemic. That wouldn't be surprising to me. Maybe it's just that life got, quote unquote, too busy. But for whatever reason, you fell away from your faith. You fell away from the church, and we want to give you an opportunity. This is a great day to put a little spiritual marker down on the ground to commit to say, I want to, I want to come back. You can tick that box. And then you can tick the box that says, publicly declare your faith through baptism. Uh, man, we've been having some fun with baptisms the last few weeks here at Current, baptizing the recent past six adults, and it's, it's always a party. We bring in a nice tank back there that our team miraculously figures out how to warm up. It's pretty cool. Um, But we have a party, and we'd love to give you an opportunity. The bigger point is, if you've made a faith decision, you've put your faith in Jesus, you've never been baptized, that's your next step, and we'd love to help you do that. We'd love to celebrate with you. And then then last but not least, actually, uh, uh, there's one more thing that you can can do a write-in, okay? Because I want to give you an opportunity. 
if you're here today and maybe you've piqued your interest, you're like, man, I, you know, I realize I haven't really checked into any of that. And maybe you're feeling curious. Go ahead and write those words. I'm curious. And we'd love to give you a book and support you in whatever ways. I would just say to those of you who are like that, um, you know Jim Collins, the chief principal scientist and director of the Human Genome Pro- Project, that, that Jim Collins, um, he was interviewed at one point, and, he, and he, he put his faith in Jesus late in life, and it all came about. The, the starting point for him was he was at one of his patient's deathbeds, this elderly lady, and this elderly lady asked him what he thought would happen after life, and after death, and he, he didn't have an answer for it. And what he said was, oh my goodness, I hadn't looked into the claims. I hadn't looked into the evidence is the word he used. And here I was, a scientist. If you're curious, we'd love to be a support to you in that because life's big questions are too important not to give more than just a, a glance to. We, and if any of those are, are true of you, you can hold on to this and there will be a, a point in which at the end of, after this message, where the team will come around with buckets, you can place this in there and then do stop by our table back there. They'll give you the gift. Uh, they're not going to be weird or pressuring anything. It's just be a help to you in whatever way we can. You can place these in the buckets here in a few moments. I want to say a couple of things real quickly, and then we're going to go, we're going to sing, and then we're going to go party. Banchan and Rocco's Tacos. For those of you who have put your faith in Jesus, the resurrection changes everything. Here are three things that our text highlights. Number one, we groan. You and I, Christian friends, are called to groan. When people are hurting, when people are suffering, when, that, when we are hurting, when we are suffering, we are called to groan. We are called to mourn with those who mourn, weep with those who weep, as well as rejoice with those who rejoice. But we are called to groan. And, and here's what I, I feel is sad. It can often be conveyed or just subtly thought for Christians without even realizing is that when you put your faith in Jesus, you just need to put all that behind you. It's all going to be good later on. So we'll just, no, we're, our Lord is groaning. The spirit is groaning. The world is not the way it's supposed to be. And in the, middle, in the meantime, yeah, we groan, meaning we mourn, we empathize. And then number two, we're called to pray. This is the very next verse in the text. It won't be on the screen. Uh, maybe it'll be, I forget. Sorry, slide scene, I'm messing you up there. Uh, we do not know what we ought to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. We pray I'll tell you what, when I'm reading the news, I have never more felt at a loss for how to pray than in our recent times. Like I'm reading so many, I'm at a loss for how to pray. But you know what our text just tells us is even then the spirit groans, he prays on our behalf, whether it's for us or whether it's for what we're groaning about. And here's the thing I love is God has all the wisdom and love and care to at Certain points in the scriptures say, go on record in the scriptures say, these earth pains, suffering, all that is only going to increase as time goes on. He's able to hold that with the tension of also loving and caring for people in the midst of it, while also holding the tension of our prayers and responding. That's such good news because I don't know how to pray, but I can groan, and the Lord prays on, on, on our behalf as he knows everything and meets everybody in his, in his wisdom. And then last but not least, because of the resurrection, we're to be agents of hope. Be an agent of hope. Verse 24 and 25 say, For in this hope we are saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But we hope for what we do not yet have. We wait for it patiently. That word patiently can also very easily be translated 
in perseverance. The word in the Greek is never passive, meaning it's not like we're waiting for this hope sitting on our thumbs, just, okay, the next life is going to be good, so I'm just going to check out until then. No. Christians, because the resurrection is true and because the resurrection changes everything, ought to stand in the gap. We are called to be agents of hope and reconciliation. In other words, like our Lord Jesus, who in his earthly life could have done everything sitting back, but instead went to where the pain and suffering was and sat there and helped and loved and cared. That's what we're called to be about as a church. And if anything, the resurrection calls Christians to be leading out in that. And I just love, this is one of the things that gives me most joy about what, the church, what God is doing through this church. Cindy highlighted the fact that there's been some organizations that we partner with. We hope that's helping uh, homeless, uh, homelessness in, in the East Palo Alto area, but not just resourcing people, rehabilitating, equipping, educating. It's, it's amazing what they're doing. Uh, getting to help with foster the city, helping orphans get into loving homes. We've been helping with human uh, human trafficking. We've been helping combat that. We've been helping with Syrian refugees. It's been pretty incredible. And I, I love to be able to highlight this because so much of this is constantly happening in and through the church, but it's not like every week we're just going, hey, look at what's happening, but it's really exciting. It's what we're called to do, but more importantly, we want to invite you, if you're here and visiting, we would love for you to be a part of that as we look for tangible and intangible ways to, to love our neighbor, as Jesus calls us to, to be a light and source of love where he's called us to. And it's, it's awesome to get to do this with you guys. I mean, it's such a joy to do this in the Silicon Valley of all places, to steward resources and to steward time and talent for the sake of helping people, having an impact in the community, making a difference, all for God's glory. The resurrection changes everything. The world is not the way it's supposed to be, but the resurrection changes all of that. It's the promise of life, we move from death to life. Life here and now, because we receive God's unconditional love. There's no other source for unconditional love. So we receive that love, that life, but we also receive eternal life, resurrection with Christ when the new age begins. And friends, it's going to be such a party. We get to kick it off with a little, little foretaste with our party today with some banchan chicken and, and Rocco's tacos. But Guys, it's going, to be, it's going to be amazing. And we would just say, if you're here visiting, we'd love to have you. We'd love to invite you to be a part of the community. Uh, let's pray, and then we'll, we'll head towards those things. Father, thank you so much for Easter. Thank you again for the cross, and, and thank you for the empty tomb. Thank you for moving us from, from death to life, from frustration to freedom. Father, would you help us as a church, live as agents of hope and reconciliation. Would you help us groan? Would you help us pray? And would you help us step into the gap? Tangibly, actively love our neighbor and be your source of love and light in the community. Uh, thank you for the celebrations we're getting ready to have. Thank you for the food we're about to eat. And uh, Lord, would you please bless the rest of our festivities here and all that uh, those who are here go off to do afterwards. We pray this in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before I 